0: All right, cool. Dr. Lauer, we're, we're live on Talk Mental Health with Logan Noon. Thanks again for agreeing to do this. Um, you're a hospice physician here in town. Mm-hmm. Originally trained, I guess, as a family medicine physician and then you did extra training, right, to yeah. certified in, okay, hospice yeah. care. Um, and then I rotated you, I guess, roughly six months ago. Yeah,
1: it was about six months yeah. ago. Yeah,
0: um, a short little two-week elective. And, yeah, I mean, it really was, I think, one of my favorite rotations from a phys- soon-to-be, I guess, physician standpoint. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I, it really also changed my personal outlook on life, kind of, and, and yeah. taking advantage of every day. You know, we, we worked with some patients who just got dealt a horrific hand in life. And it's like, oh, man. And it, and it just really made me look at, like, everything I have and, like, I take for granted too often. Um, and so thank you, yeah, for giving me all that opportunity. Um, yeah. So welcome.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I like having students come through the rotation. It's, like you said, an elective, um, which part of me kind of feels like everybody should do it. Just because we get all of this, Training in medical school and residency, and then all this reinforcement as we're you know go out into the world as physicians, that it's our job to fight death. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, then we wonder why physicians have such an incredibly high burnout rate and all this, um, you know, these struggles with mental health and um, with substance abuse, but we don't support them, mm-hmm. you know, through this, and we don't ever talk about physician grief. Mm-hmm. and the fact that that's a real thing that every one of us is going to have to deal with and if we're setting ourselves up as the ones who fight death, well you're going to lose that battle every time mm-hmm. so um, what's what's your plan for how you're going to handle that going forward as a physician and I think that's really really a critical question that we're not asking um, most people when they go through and I take the opportunity when people rotate with me to very deliberately you know expose mm. them to some of these things because it does it changes your worldview and i think for the better
0: yeah absolutely and i was thinking about it on the drive over here it's like so my third year of medical school i had to do an OBGYN, mm-hmm. i had to do pediatrics and so like every single one of our patients is born and every single one of our patients will die mm-hmm. but hospice is not a required uh, rotation for medical school, and I, I think it should be. I think mm-hmm. it's stupid, but it almost seems like we're ignoring this entire aspect of care that is a certainty.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it and drives we me are. nuts.
1: Yeah, we, we 100% are, and I think it's it's not necessarily that people haven't thought about it being important. It's that they've thought about it and said, "Oh, that's icky. Mm. Like I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to think about it. That makes me really uncomfortable." So we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. and i mean that's really it's the message throughout medical school yeah throughout medical television and movies and all of those things that like you're you know the one standing between the patient and the grave and that's not a fair place to put you yeah. um yeah but it also is you know we are a society that in general avoids death avoids talking about death and there's lots of other countries that do this better than we do Mm. Um, like what? Well, the the modern hospice movement started in Great Britain, and um, when you when you look at the hospice model, even in the U.S., you know it, it's basically modeled off of socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. So when you because it's very hard to provide end of life care with anything but a full, robust team. Yeah. So they basically couldn't figure out how to pay us. Looked at you know European countries who were already doing this and said, "Well, let's just do what they're doing and just pay them a bundle payment, and Mm -hmm. you guys figure out how to pay for that." And so we end up doing this sort of you know really socialized medicine because you look at these other countries and these other models, and that's what works. And when you're looking at it from a less well, capitalist model. Mm-hmm. Um, when you take the the profit out of medicine, um, the drive to avoid death disappears to some extent, mm-hmm. um, which is a really sad statement. But well, and in a way, too. like if
0: if we're living in this capitalized medicine society, it's like, well, how much money can we extract from their medical care, yeah. rather than like, well, what can we just provide them for maybe the most economical price, kind of way.
1: Well, and that's the thing when you look at the at the. Um, the economics of hospice, it's so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, the last month of life in most Medicare data it costs upwards of $30,000 mm-hmm. per patient. Um, hospice isn't spending nearly, they're not, we're not spending a tenth of that. But um, that's because a lot of people are dying in the ICU, they're dying in yeah. the hospital. This isn't people who are dying at home comfortably with their family. But if you talk to people, that's usually what they want. Mm-hmm. And so really the economical option also ends up being the humanist option too. Yeah. Um it's very rare that you talk to people and you talk through their goals of care and their their goal is to die in the hospital without yeah. anybody with them. With like
0: tubes attached to every orifice of their body. Yeah, yeah. that's
1: that's very rarely their goal. No, so, certainly not. Yeah, it's nice to be able to offer something that is both more in line with people's goals but also kind of helps the community and mm-hmm. You know, there's. I have a hard time seeing the downside of hospice, but that's why I do it for a living. Yeah, <laughs> you know?
0: yeah. Like, you're a little biased.
1: <laughs> I'm a little biased. Yeah. So how do you how do you then think
0: the medical system should change? Because I just keep thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents are like baby boomers, right? Mm-hmm. They're like 70-ish. And so thankfully, we're not having to have hospice conversations. But in the next 20, hopefully 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. years, we will most likely. Mm-hmm. And and baby boomers are the biggest portion of our, our American society. So how should, in your opinion, if you could design this, it change for the better?
1: Yeah. So um, what a lot of other countries do is that hospice isn't this hard stop moment like it is in the US where you have to make a decision to abandon all life-sustaining therapies and go to hospice. Mm-hmm. It's really artificial. You know, what most countries do is it's more of a continuum of care. And I think that's part of where they they have more people enrolled in these programs and, and Getting what they want at the end of life because we're not saying give up all of this and go to this, which uh-huh. is a hard choice for people. Um, and that's where palliative care comes in. Uh-huh. You know, palliative care, I think a lot of people think of it as the same as hospice or pre hospice or something like that. But really, what it is is the same hospice philosophy, the care planning and goal setting and symptom management. But you're doing it in a setting where you don't have to have that hard stop and come on to the program. Uh So we'll do palliative care when someone is still going through chemo and they've got a lot of symptoms from their cancer or from their chemotherapy. Um, We'll do it with people who are you know, end-stage heart failure or end-stage COPD. Really anything that um, can be a terminal illness, palliative care can be a good option. And that's where you can sort of layer that onto other things and start having these conversations earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really programmed as physicians to think about that, though, and so I think if you're going to try to change the system, you've got to go way upstream. And you know that's why I started teaching at PNWU because trying to get in before the patterns of behavior and referral are set mm-hmm. with the with new physicians coming out. And having the, I, the idea that not only is death an unavoidable thing we don't want to talk about, it's something that's part of life. And looking at that last stage of life as a valuable um, stage that we want to maximize, mm-hmm. uh, I think is really important because otherwise it's just that conversation you don't want to have.
0: Yeah. So. Well, and thank you for explaining that because to me I almost did view... And I still, I guess maybe sort of do, but like hospice and palliative care mm-hmm. is sort of the same beast. Mm-hmm. And I, in my limited experience, you know, very, very short experience, it seems like hosp- or patients get so afraid, and maybe even physicians too, yeah. of the word hospice. Yeah. But palliative care is like, ooh, like what's that like new kind of fancy mm-hmm. thing? Even though it is kind of like, well, I view it almost as like our goals are just changing. Like I'm mm-hmm. still your physician, but my goal is not to make... You live as long as you possibly can necessarily. Right.
1: Yeah. And so we tend to talk about palliative care as the big umbrella, that this is the sort of philosophy of care and the specialty that we work in. And then hospice is a program where we provide palliative care to a certain subset of patients. And so they're, you know, the smaller group under the umbrella. Um, But not everybody goes to hospice from palliative care. We have people who, you know, do palliative care through. Their chemotherapy and then come Mm. off of it, and we, you know, wish them well and say, Come back if you need us. Mm. Um, And I've had people who did the same thing with, you know, really bad CHF exacerbation, and, you know, people didn't think they were going to come out of it. So we have all these goals of care conversations and talk about, well, what do you want and manage the symptoms. And then they kind of bounce back and go back to their life, and we say, Well, cool. You know, I'm not, I'm not chasing people around with a pillow. You know, making sure that they, yeah. they stop breathing. At your some six point. months is up. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's actually one thing I I found very interesting. Leaving this rotation is how poor physicians we are at predicting when death is actually going to come. Oh, we're terrible at it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And one thing I I talk about a lot, and I don't know, if, I'm sure I told you this, but um, it's worth repeating. Um, is that the the more emotionally invested you are in the prognosis, the poorer you're going to be at it as the physician. Mm-hmm. So um, clearly, you know, emotionally invested in your family. You know, we talk about it all the time, that that's why we don't treat our own family yeah. members. But you're going to have a very poor idea of how those people are going to do. But also, the family doctor taking care of someone that they've that they've cared for for 30 years, is going to be worse at prognosis. And interestingly, a physician working in their specialty, especially if they're really subspecialized, so the oncologist who does primarily breast cancer is going to be worse at predicting breast cancer deaths than, say, congestive heart failure deaths.
0: Oh, okay. Wow. Because okay. they're
1: emotionally invested in the outcome.
0: Yeah, yeah. And maybe they know all the crazy intricate ways that they could try to treat breast cancer mm-hmm. kind of
1: thing. Very interesting. Yeah, they've got all the bargaining tools right there. Yeah. <laughs> but I can fix this. I can do it. Like, this and is my thing.
0: I, I Another weird uh, factoid I remember you taught me, and, and maybe you know this stat off the head that I'm trying to refer to, is sometimes when a patient does decide to not go on hospice care and mm-hmm. just fight to the very last moment, every medical thing mm-hmm. that they can, versus hospice, sometimes the life expectancy is actually longer mm-hmm. in hospice care.
1: Yeah. So um, they did that study in two different groups. They did it in uh, metastatic lung cancer patients, and the, they found that doing good symptom management in lieu of, quote, aggressive life-prolonging therapies actually extended life by about two and a half months. Mm-hmm. Um, And you can think of all sorts of reasons why that might be. We're not stressing out the body. We're not putting them in the hospital where they can get nosocomial infections. Um,
0: And sometimes, like, even the the cancer therapies just seem so the side effects. Yeah, yeah,
1: they're really toxic. Mm -hmm. And I tell patients all the time that um, most chemotherapies are a race to kill the cancer before you kill the patient. Mm -hmm. And if you're not pretty strong going into that, you could very well lose that battle. Yeah. And that's. I think that should be part of the informed consent but it often isn't mm-hmm. um, But they also did that study, that same study in uh, congestive heart failure patients And they found it was about three months longer that people lived on yeah. chemo And again I think it's, you know, if you're giving huge doses of diuretics And um, getting people into the hospital and exposing them to all those sick people mm-hmm. um, You're stressing that body quite a bit Yeah so it's, it's not necessarily a positive to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. So how has uh, coronavirus kind of really impacted uh, you know, your, your hospice practice? Mm.
1: Yeah, a lot. Um, we've been doing a lot of COVID. Um, we've had a lot of patients come through. We had to modify our hospice house so that half of it was negative pressure rooms that we were able to take care of people with active COVID over there. Um, Most of our COVID patients came out of the hospital, and it was people that they um, were essentially withdrawing care on, Mm -hmm. Um, so they were on really high levels of oxygen or BiPAP or other pressure support kind of things, Um, and we would get them... More uh, comfortable, mostly with shortness of breath, Mm -hmm. and then start backing off the oxygen. Not because we want them to die or, um, you know, we don't have enough oxygen or something like Mm -hmm. that, but mostly just because oxygen can be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's very drying. You see all the time people trying to pull it off their face and, you know, we're putting it back on. Um, We tend to look at it more in terms of, oh, you're pulling that off your face. How else could we manage the symptom that Mm -hmm. would make you more comfortable so you're not? Clawing at the mask. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did. We've done a lot of that. Um, I think one thing that is underestimated <clears throat> is the effect that that has on the staff. Yeah, you know, we've had a lot of turnover in terms of patients, people coming in and being with us for a very short time, um, and that's just a lot of grief for mm-hmm. for all of the staff. Um, there's we've sort of picked up on that and started having more uh, grief support for the staff, more debriefings on some of the more difficult deaths and, um, just trying to support people where they're at because we can't keep doing this. If, Mm -hmm. if it piles up to the point where, where we burn out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think working in the hospice care, it's, it just has to be so much so emotionally draining Mm -hmm. then you add on COVID on top of that Mm -hmm. it's just like a perfect storm i feel like um yeah i I think a lot about me as a future psychiatrist how i can like Mm -hmm. best help you know not only those patients but the the staff members you know and Mm -hmm. and so i guess you know i i will thankfully i found out yesterday i'll be a psychiatrist so yeah like uh, how do you think i i should cater to um hospital care workers or hospice care workers mm-hmm. you know in my future practice
1: i think uh trauma informed care is really important uh we tend to underestimate and i would say even dismiss the effect of the things we have to do to people on the caregivers themselves and um you know it's again getting back to the rates of physician burnout, I, I think that exists for a reason. And a lot mm-hmm. of that is secondary trauma. Um, things you've seen, or not even if you had to do them, but things you've seen done to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're beings that are designed to survive, or we wouldn't have made it this long. And uh, your brain isn't designed to let those things go.
0: Yes, definitely. Yes, definitely. And, and you know, I remember, I think... Me and you always used to joke how like CPR in the movies and the TV mm-hmm. shows always is you know this magical experience, and it works. And yeah, in my, like I said, short career, um, it's been horrific. It's, it's been awful. the worst thing ever. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just... I, I don't like necessarily painting the picture super vividly for non-medical people, mm-hmm. but at least for a lot of the listeners of the show are medical people. And I think at least talking about how it's not... Mm -hmm. I don't think we should have a normal response to this. It is a weird thing that we're Mm -hmm. being asked to do. And, uh, you know, having these conversations more rather than trying to play it all cool and coy, you know, in Mm -hmm. the emergency room or ICU, wherever we may be.
1: And I think, honestly, for me, what drove me towards hospice and palliative care was I had, I was just kind of the cloud in my residency where if something was going to happen it was probably going to happen on my shift. Mm. You know, I had um other residents who made it 3 years without ever running a code and if I could make it through a call night without running a code, mm. I thought I was doing pretty good. Um some nights it was multiple codes <laughs> and it, what I discovered you know, I think I think it can it can be really easy in our profession to take that that clinical distance and you know hold everything at arm's length including your own emotions um which isn't a terribly healthy way to handle those Mm -hmm. so when you're when you're looking at how things are going down in a code or what's going on with your patient in the icu I find it really important to check in with my emotions uh-huh. and I don't think I was as good at that in residency. When I when I think back about how some of those things affected me, you know, there's still cases that what is it, 15 years later I still can draw you the picture pretty vividly. Uh-huh. I won't, but, um, you know, it's, there's ones that were definitely defining moments where I was standing in the ICU with a family and thinking, why are we doing this? And mm-hmm. those were the ones that honestly felt the most traumatic to me that uh, that I carried for, for a long time because it was, I felt like I was actively engaged in injuring the patient. Mm. And, you know, we take this oath to do no harm. And I think we, when we first go out into the medical world, we think of that as, I'm gonna keep people from dying, but then you start seeing all the ways that we can cause harm that have nothing to do with death mm-hmm. and sometimes a natural, peaceful death is the not harm,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's kind of a I guess a good segue to the the next thing I really wanted to ask with you is like you know we take this oath of doing no harm, mm-hmm. um, and I've done a couple episodes on this on on this channel, but like death with. Dignity, mm-hmm. physician-assisted suicide, death. I don't even know what the best words are to describe this, mm-hmm. but when a physician can legally um, prescribe something to a patient that would uh, hasten their death. So I mm-hmm. guess it would be in a very simplistic way against our oath, but I, mm-hmm. I agree with you where I think a lot of our treatments um, are more harmful than we, than we really think. Yeah. And I think patients should have the right to um, use this legislation, to use these prescriptions if they want mm-hmm. um, and if they're uh, mentally capable to make that on their that mm-hmm. decision themselves so I guess can you tell us a little bit about this legislation that I'm referring to and what's mm-hmm. your role in it
1: yeah so different states have different um, nomenclature I guess uh, overall when they talk about it in the literature they refer to it as medical aid and dying and it's An interesting ethical quandary, Mm -hmm. as you bring up, that it, there are people who come down really hard on both sides. We're in an interesting position as hospice and palliative physicians because they've, our national organization has essentially told us that it's almost a conflict of interest for us to be the prescribing physician. And so they've asked that we not. Um, The rationale behind that is that when we talk to people about medical aid in dying, one of the things you have to do, like any medical procedure, is provide informed consent. Uh And so I will happily have that conversation with people and explain to them the process and and what their options are. And the options, the alternatives to medical aid in dying tend to be things like hospice and palliative care Mm -hmm. and so that's where our where our organization says no if we're the alternative we probably shouldn't be playing both sides of that Mm -hmm. so we can offer and consult um and then we should be referring to someone else to do the actual prescribing so that's that's where i um where i come into it um most of the people who pursue medical aid in dying are either on hospice or palliative care because we do, at least in Washington, have to uh, verify that they have a prognosis of six months or less mm-hmm. um, in our best medical opinion, Yeah. knowing, of course, like we said earlier, that we're terrible at guessing. But um, it also requires that two physicians say the same thing, which is also true for hospice. Excuse me. But... um with the with end of Life Washington, which is what it's called here, they actually provide a volunteer to help the person sort of walk through the whole process, and that's I usually connect them with that person mm-hmm. um, because a lot of times the people who are trying to go through this they don't have a lot of energy they don't have mm-hmm. they don't have the ability to go running around and trying to get from this doctor to this doctor and then to the pharmacy and all these things. Um, I know we've talked about this a little bit previously, but um, the, there, is, there are some serious barriers when patients want to access this. Um, we are in a fairly small town here and there are a limited number of physicians who will prescribe. In town, and there are no pharmacists who will fill the prescription.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, many times, a patient who wants to pursue medical aid and dying is trying to access this through these days, probably telehealth, but often they were going across the mountains into Seattle and then trying to get the prescription. Again, you're going to Seattle, you're going to, you know, an hour and a half away to the Tri Cities to find someone who will fill it. Uh, And that has to be done in person. That isn't, you know, Mm -hmm. something that a mail order pharmacy is going to send you. Or, um, you know, they're not going to be cool with a doctor calling it in. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be a lot of, here's your paper prescription. You need to hand, you know, carry this to the pharmacy. No one can do it for you. And then um, you have to, you know, take the medicine home with you. So for someone who is terminally ill, those are some pretty serious barriers. Mm -hmm. And if I
0: remember correctly, insurance doesn't pay for it.
1: Correct. Yeah. Insurance doesn't pay for any of it, including the prescription itself, which usually runs into the thousands of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another barrier that um, can be very, very difficult. And so what you're really talking about is sort of narrowing down who is even able to access these services. Mm-hmm. So many times when I have this conversation and we get to that part of it, um, Families go, oh, well, that's out. Mm -hmm. And then we talk about what their other alternatives could be. And I never go into that conversation without having a pretty serious conversation about, now tell me why. Why do you want to talk about that? Because I think they found that if it's a symptom-based desire to pursue that, um, like 90% of people end up not not going through with it uh-huh. once you take care of the symptom. So if it's a symptom that just hasn't been adequately managed, we're going to work on that um, if they want to. Uh, most of the, one, the patients that I've had who did pursue it, it wasn't necessarily a symptom that made them go that direction. It, it was usually a matter of seeing the loss of control ahead of them and wanting to be able to control their end of life to some extent
0: Yeah, and but then speaking kind of of control remember you taught me this or, or at least directed me to a resource that had this a lot of the patients who go through all this rigmarole, pay all mm-hmm. the $5,000 and get all the signs and finally have the prescription, don't even end up using it mm-hmm. and then die of natural causes it's just like having that sense of control that if they do get to that point where hey, I am over it um, but then they end up not really using it. I, yeah. I thought that was just such a weird aspect of this whole.
1: Yeah, theory. and there's you know the first verbal consent that, or the first verbal request that they have to make, and then a second one 14 days later, and then there's a waiting period for the the prescription. And many people somewhere along the line go, oh, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm all right. And so just knowing that it's an option out there, I think, is a big comfort to a lot of people, mm-hmm. whether or not they actually pull the trigger and utilize it
0: yeah i so after i rotated with you i I remember i was visiting some family we have a family friend who his uh position not medical he is a lawyer who does a lot of estate planning Mm -hmm. and so he was telling me how this could get so complicated in his world kind of thing mm. if he was working with one of his clients who of course has like a large kind of estate how it could be viewed as mm-hmm. someone trying to get access essentially mm-hmm. to that estate if they were helping a patient with this you know long process as sure. you described
1: yeah so one of the things that we have to put in the we have to fill out a form after someone makes a verbal request to us and one of the things that is on there is that the patient has to state that they are not being coerced in any way, right. um, and I think that's a large reason why um, that people could have a financial driver for wanting to pursue this, and patients themselves may have a financial driver because, as we talked about earlier, the capitalist medical system is going to try to squeeze mm-hmm. them for all they're worth. So, um, you know, when they're looking at that and they're worried about bankrupting their family or can I go for this option? And then they find out that that's a really expensive option too. Mm-hmm. People can feel really hopeless too. Yeah. Um, I have yet to see any of the, the patients that I've had pursue it have issues with their estate, mm-hmm. um, largely because the estate never finds out. Mm, so um, it doesn't show up on the death certificate. They still died of their disease. It is considered a natural death that is not considered a suicide Um, and so it's sort of only that information is only available to who the patient chooses to have that information available to Okay.
0: and one of the other things I thought though was so weird you know the more I learn about this legislation and I'm sure I'll play some role in it in my future but it almost seems like if you're so sick You can't access this Mm -hmm. like if you can't take the prescription yourself Mm -hmm. um, you know or if you have any elements of like dementia or like memory kind of Mm -hmm. issues it's not something you can pursue either Mm -hmm. where you know I know my personal fear um, moving forward is like an Alzheimer's diagnosis not knowing anything around me kind of thing yeah but a patient like that could not access anything like
1: this that's correct yeah so the patient has to be able to consent for it themselves and if, if there's a concern about depression or other mental illness that could be driving this, we're required to have a psychiatrist evaluate them at that point. Um, so I do sort of a basic depression screening when I do these consults. Um, in addition, the patient has to be able to take the prescription themselves, and whether that's you know taking it orally, or doing it through like a tube that they that they've been feeding themselves through, um, one way or the other they have to they have to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't be dosed by a medical professional. It's not supposed to be dosed by the family, and it can't be done with supervision of at least in Washington of medical people. So they can't do it at. A nursing home or a hospital or a hospice house it has so to like be done. it couldn't
0: be through an IV probably cuz that mm-hmm. would be like under medical care Correct. and is that different in other countries do
1: you know it yeah so frontline had a great episode oh it's probably really old now okay but it's called the suicide tourist and okay. it's about a man with ALS who goes to Switzerland mm-hmm. to um, pursue medical aid in dying, and his options there are much broader than okay. than they are in the U.S. even now. At the time, this was, that came out right about the time that Oregon was the first state that passed a law for medical aid in dying, but um, even now, the the options in Europe tend to be a little bit more open than they are here. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, so I guess the, what I want to finish on is a lot of uh a lot of the listeners of the show are like in the in the medical world in some mm-hmm. means whether that's their pre-med students or actual medical students there's a lot of nursing students um, what advice would you give them you know moving forward to I guess just be better physicians maybe more mindful mm-hmm. for their own kind of well-being and also just for hospice care
1: mm-hmm. so I think my my sort my favorite little canned speech that I give to students is that it's important to remember that we are designed to survive. We evolved to survive and we as a species would not have made it to these glorious heights if we weren't designed that way. Um, That's great. That's also the framework you're working off of every single day. And That's important to remember when you open up the labs on a patient and realize that you're looking at something terminal. Because just like any other time that you're facing down death, your body's response is going to be fight or flight, really. And the flight response is what typically kicks in first of, oh, I don't want to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do this at all. So I'm just not gonna. I'm sure the family doctor can have that conversation. Or maybe this is the oncologist's job. But being able to recognize that, take a deep breath and say, no, this really is important to do, is incredibly important both for you and for the patient and family. The second response that happens is what you see a lot when people do walk into that conversation. The, no, 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 we can fight this. Mm -hmm. I can fix this. I, and as soon as the, the patient family start to show some discomfort with, wait, you mean I'm dying? And the tears start, that's usually when you see the, the medical person say, well, you know what we could do is we could try uh-huh. a feeding tube or we could try, you know, intubating him. And when they interview those those medical providers afterwards, they'll tell you, That, no, I knew that wasn't going to work. I knew it as I said it. But I had to give them something. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, you don't have to give them anything. You don't have to fix it. You can take a deep breath. Recognize that this is your own discomfort with the fact that we're all mortal. And just be there with them. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do, it's going to feel inadequate. Whether whether you are offering something that you know isn't going to work... Or you're trying to talk yourself into it working, or just knowing that this is this is going to end in death for this patient. It's going to feel bad. It's still important to have the conversation, mm-hmm. and it's still important to recognize that that's where you're at.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to end it. Yeah. Um, thanks again for coming on. This was super fun. This is my yeah. first in-person interview and i don't even know how long way too long me too Um, so so yeah this was great thanks again
1: oh thank you for having me
0: yeah cheers
1: the i didn't realize you liked me that way deal because it's one thing to receive mcdonald's but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you mcdonald's breakfast still hot in the bag
0: appreciate you